Israel was terrific. But I'm back in Chicago now. When we were there, we saw the Bible come alive. One aspect being the phenomenal archaeological finds. Stay with me. We'll talk about a couple of them in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm the academic dean and professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you talking about the scriptures. My, my time with you today will be about your calls. If you have a question about the Bible, God, or the spiritual life, we're going to uh, hopefully answer them, do our best to do that. Uh, if you have a question and you'd like to call, the phone number is 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Karen Hendren is our producer. She's sitting in for Trisha today. Trisha needed a little time to hang out with her kids after coming back from Israel. I, I don't blame her. Uh, handling all things technical is Courtney Young. Answering the phones is Gwen. Now, go get your cup of coffee. Open your Bible because we're about to study the scriptures. But before that, let's talk some archaeology that confirms the historicity of scripture. Well, just a few days ago, I was in Israel and I took our open line tour group to Israel, to the city of David. That's the original city of Jerusalem as established by King David when he conquered the Jebusites. It lies just south of the old walled city of Jerusalem. It was mistakenly left outside the walls when the walls were rebuilt in the 16th century by Suleiman, the Turkish sultan. So the city of David, the original Jerusalem, uh, although it's part of the original mountain and it slopes downward to the Pool of Siloam, is not actually included in the current old city of Jerusalem. But the site is the location of a number of important archaeological finds. First and foremost, there's a large stone structure at the top. When the late Elat Mazar was leading the excavation of the city of David, she reasons that if there were indeed, if this was indeed the original city of David, then if she excavated near the top of the city, just below the Temple Mountain, she would find the remains of David's palace. So she dug there and found a very large stone house, much larger than an ordinary person would have. The ancient shards of pottery that were found there confirmed that the large stone house was from around 1000 BC. She concluded that this indeed was the palace of King David. Now, of course, there are Bible skeptics. They say that King David was just a mythic figure, like King Arthur in England. And since Mazar didn't find a nameplate or an address saying King David's palace, no sign like that, they conclude it can't be his palace. But in light of Bible history identifying King David as king from 1010 to 970 BC, and the location of this large stone uh, structure at the top of the city of David, it seems that a lot Mazar's determination is correct, that this is indeed David's palace. A second important category of finds in the city of David is evidence that the upper part, where that, that large stone structure was, that it continued to be a royal governmental area of the kingdom of Judah for several hundred years, even until the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The confirmation of this is in the number of clay seals Israeli archaeologists have found there. 
these clay seals are called bullae. That's the plural of it. Singular, a bulla is a small round piece of clay that was used to seal a scroll document. The author would then press their seal, like a, a signet ring, into the clay to identify who it was that sent the document. When Jerusalem was destroyed and burned by the Babylonians, the fire was so intense, it functioned like a kiln, baking these clay seals and thereby preserving them. Many of these bullae have been found in the same area as the royal palace. In 2019, for example, Israeli archaeologists discovered a 2,600-year-old clay seal with the words in ancient pre-Babylonian Hebrew saying, belonging to Nathan Melech, servant of the king. And the word Nathan Melech means gift of the king. So Nathan Melech, servant of the king. This is related to 2 Kings 23.11, where Nathan Melech is identified as a royal official of King Josiah, who reigned from 640 to 610 B.C. Other bullae found there indicate the area was also a royal building. For example, a seal was found with the name Gadaliah, son of Pashur, and another with the name of Jukal, son of Shelemiah. They're both mentioned in Jeremiah 38.1. They're called servants of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Uh, he reigned until the, the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C. Both these men, Jukal and uh, 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 Gadaliah, were involved in a plot against Jeremiah. But their names are found there, and it is a remarkable confirmation of the historicity of the Bible. What does this have to do with us? These items are further archaeological confirmation of the truth of Scripture. In John seventeen seventeen, the Lord Jesus prayed for his disciples. He asked the Father to, quote, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Too often people want to minimize the truth of Scripture by saying it's only true when it speaks of spiritual matters, but not when it addresses history or science. But when the Lord Jesus said that God's word is truth, he was affirming that it's all accurate, every bit of it, that everything the Bible affirms as true is indeed true down to the historical details. That's why we can trust the Bible for spiritual truth, because all of it is true. We don't have archaeological confirmation for everything the Scripture says, but consistently archaeological finds support the words of Jesus, that God's Word is true, that the Bible is really God's Word. It's true, and we can depend on it for everything in our lives. So, uh, that I hope that spurred you on to want to go to Israel there was so much more than just the archaeological finds, by the way, that we saw. The Bible just comes alive. You see the topography, the geography. All of it just opens up for us. Uh, the the kinds of flowers and, and trees just helps us understand what the scriptures are saying. And I have, I have good news. I want to announce another Bible lands trip that Moody is organizing. This is new news. It's big deal. We are going to do a Moody Bible Institute Journeys of Paul tour in September of 2024. Uh, it'll be partly a cruise on the Star Clipper, which is a tall ship with sails, uh, just a beautiful 
uh, ship that's very steady, very easy, to, a beautiful place. But we've charted that ship, and we are going to visit uh, the sites of Paul's journeys. And then uh, we're also going to have a few days on a bus, and we're going to see some of the other places that the ship doesn't go to. So we're going to see uh, places like Athens and Corinth, where Paul preached, uh, we're going to see places like Ephesus and Miletus, uh, Philippi, Thessaloniki, uh, Berea. We are going to see the biblical sites that Paul was uh, preaching the good news at, uh, the journeys of Paul. It's going to be a fantastic tour. Our Bible teachers, I'll be there along to teach the Bible, but so will Dr. Mark Joe, president of Moody Bible Institute, and also Dr. Joe Stoll, former president of Moody Bible Institute and currently an advisor to our president, Mark Job. So Joe Stoll, Mark Job, me, and uh, there'll be just a great time on this chartered ship, worshiping together, studying together, seeing the sites together. I hope you'll check it out. Just go to openlineradio.org. That's our website. And you'll see a link, a banner across the top, and you can find out more. Click on that banner. So uh, big news the Moody Bible Institute Journeys of Paul Tour. Well, it's time to go to the phones. Our first call is Patty in Huntley, Illinois, listening on WMBI. Welcome to Open Line, Patty. How can I help you today? Good morning. I would like to know when a person dies, what happens immediately? And does God keep those in health? forever that would not believe or accept Jesus. Body, mind, and spirit, soul, what happens? Well, let me ask you why you're asking. What uh, Are you asking what happens to someone who knows Jesus or someone who doesn't know Jesus? Both. Both. Well, it's pretty clear in Scripture that the future of followers of Jesus, uh, while their body may appear to be asleep or buried or whatever happens to the body here, the immaterial portion of the body goes to be with the Lord. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 1 when he talks about uh, that he uh, he knows that it's important for him to stay behind and minister to the Philippians, Philippians but uh, he says, uh, I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. He also says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, absent from the body is present with the Lord. So when the immaterial part of the person leaves the body at death, it goes to be with the Lord Jesus immediately. Now, uh, what we can tell from the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the person who doesn't know the Lord, is separated from him, and uh, it's a very uncomfortable condition to be separated from him. What the scriptures teach is that everyone will be resurrected. So those who know the Lord will be resurrected to eternal life in resurrected bodies. And then in the book of Revelation, it says at the great white throne judgment that before that, everyone, even those who never knew the Lord, will be resurrected and they will be separated from him. They will be judged and separated from him forever. So uh, it's a pretty serious thing. That's why it's so important, Patty, that we share the good news with people today that we help them understand the truth of the good news, that God wants to forgive their sins. He wants them to enter into a forever relationship with him where they will be with him forever. That's what the scriptures promise. Does, does that help at all? 
Amen. It certainly does. Those of us who do believe and have accepted Jesus will be with him immediately. And that I understand. But will we then live in heaven? Will there be a waiting period until Jesus returns? Well, we're going to be with him, our immaterial portion, the this body's the soul and the spirit and the mind and that that I it's hard for me to distinguish those features so I just call it the immaterial portion those go to be with the Lord Jesus in heaven and then there will be a resurrection and after the resurrection we'll live with him forever uh, and uh, he'll be reigning on the earth and I believe for a thousand I happen to believe it's for a thousand years and then there's a new heavens and a new earth and we will have access first of all, to the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, and then the uh, eternal uh, new heavens and new earth will be with him. So we'll have a physical, bodily eternity with him. So anyway, thanks for your call, Patty. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a break here when we come back. And when we come back, uh, we'll take more of your calls. This is Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. Keep listening because... the question you were asking, maybe someone's up next and they're going to ask it for you. So uh, we'll be right back. Stay with me. This is Michael Redelnik on Open Line. We're back. My name is Michael Rydelnik. The program is called Open Line, and it really is open. If you have a question about the Bible, God, or the spiritual life, just give me a call. Our phone number is 877-548-3675. Feel free to call with your question about the Bible, God, or the spiritual life. Uh, to give you a chance to call, let me tell you also uh, about our current resource. It's a classic by Charles Ryrie. It's called Balancing the Christian Life. Many Jesus followers uh, tell me how much they want to grow, but no matter how much we want to, I think the nature of human beings is we get off balance. We emphasize one aspect of growth over another. And as a new follower of Jesus, this book gave me a great foundation for spiritual growth. I read this when I was in uh, my first year at Moody Bible Institute. I still use it as a discipleship tool with new believers, and I have found that people who have known the Lord for many years, when they read it, they say it balances out their life. It helps them to continue to grow. So it's it's a great book, not just for new believers, but also a great book for people who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And it's yours. Uh, we want to say thank you when you give a gift of any size to Open Line. so we'll send you a copy of Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. If you'd like to give a gift to Open Line, help keeping us uh, on the air and, and helping people with their understanding of the Bible, just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, when you give, ask for Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. We're going to speak with Robert in Cleveland, Ohio right now. Hi, Robert. How can I help you? Hi, Doctor. Um, I'm uh, blessed. I just have a question, and my question is when the disciples received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, there were many gifts that was given. My mm-hmm. question is, are all of those gifts still present today with us? Well, the, in, at Pentecost, only one gift is evident. 
You said many gifts. What gifts do you mean? Um, gifts of prophecy, speaking in tongues, so forth. Well, there was no prophecy. There was only tongues in Acts 2. Isn't that true? Unless I'm reading it wrong. Okay. Don't you think? All uh, right, okay. All right. Okay. okay. I wasn't reading so you're, Okay. So, I wasn't reading so, so you, okay. you said on the day of Pentecost, there were lots of gifts received. And I'm, I'm reading Acts 2, and it talks about that they received languages. In fact, I like the Holman Christian Standard Bible because that's what it says that the people were speaking. They were speaking in their own languages. Uh, listen to what it says. Uh, they heard them speaking in his own language, and they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. So uh, it sounds to me that the, the gift, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in different languages. It sounds to me like the gift of tongues as some versions call it, is the gift of languages. It's the ability to speak a foreign language that you've never learned. And uh, now, I'll tell you how I understand it, uh, Robert. As I understand that gift, first of all, I don't think God has changed. I think he could do a miracle, and if he wanted someone to miraculously speak a language that they've never learned for a particular reason, he could do it. I, I believe God is um, supernatural enough to give a person the ability to speak in a, a regular language they never learned. However, people often think that this is a gift that's normative, that people can have this gift. I don't think the gift has continued. I think the miracle can happen, but the gift, I believe, from reading various passages of Scripture, uh, the, a gift is something you can do at will anytime. Uh, you can, you know, for example, roll out of bed and uh, be wakened, and you can exercise your gift. Uh, it, it doesn't, you can control it, self-control of the gift. I don't believe that's true any longer. I think that the gift that they had in the first century to confirm the the revelation of God to support the revelation of God until the New Testament was complete, uh, that gift is no longer available. But can God do that if he chose to? Absolutely. Uh, he's certainly able to have someone speak a language they've never learned. Uh, but is it a, natural, uh, a normal normative gift for the body today? I don't believe that's so. Okay, Robert? Thank you. I appreciate okay. that. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for calling. You know, it's a, it's a pretty extended discussion uh, about why I think scriptures teach that. So that, that's for another time, perhaps. We can talk about that. We're going to talk with Carrie in Salem, Indiana. Uh, welcome to Open Line, Carrie. How can I help you? 
Good morning. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, we just had a Bible study, and I'm, I'm dealing with um, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32, where Jesus walks on the water. Um, and he says, in, in my version, have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. I've always loved that verse. But in our recent study, it was brought off, brought up that he's actually saying, and that's an I am statement, that it's the same words that God used from the burning bush saying, I am. And just wondered if. Does that bother you? No, it's great. (laughs) But (laughs) what, (laughs) but, but uh, my, I guess my question is, why do not, why do most, Bibles not translate it like that, or why don't we get that same feeling through most translations? That was a, a revelation to me that that's the same wording. And, and like, is that is that true, or is there well, a reason um, that they don't translate it that way? Do you think? Uh, well, first of all, I'd I'd have to look something up. It, it does say ego me, which is I am or right. it is I. It it could be either one. So. Okay. Uh, so when you, when you, when you see, uh, I'm looking here, uh, in Exodus three, the, I, I don't know, see, it's Hebrew in Exodus when God says I am. And, and this is Greek. So, uh, I'd have to look up, uh, the Septuagint to see the Septuagint is the Greek ancient Greek translation mm-hmm. uh, of of uh, of this, and I'd have to look it up in the Septuagint uh, to to see if that's the case. I'm looking at it right now. Hang on a second, uh, everyone. I have to uh, read in Greek for a second, so, <laughs> so I. Uh, yeah, there it is. Ego Amy. It is the exact same phrase in the in, for example, Exodus three six. He said, "I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob." And uh, when Moses then says, and it says, "Ego Amy," which is the Greek phrase that's used in Matthew fourteen twenty seven. Uh, so yeah, I think that. Uh, and then where it says in Exodus three fourteen, "I am." Uh, it is also I am has sent me to you. It's tell them I am. Uh, that's also uh, a go a me. Uh, so wow. it is. Uh, it it seems to me like that would be a de- now it can mean it is I. I really, you know, and I would think that the translators what they're doing in Matthew fourteen twenty seven is saying maybe Jesus is just saying don't be afraid. It's me. You know, it is I, uh, and and because that's the words can mean that very much. Although I think it's it's uh, profound that that the Messiah walking on water would say, "Ego a me," because it would certainly harken back to the Septuagint where he says, "I am." Tell them I am has sent me. I think it's deliberate, and it it I think whoever said that uh, actually got it right. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, I just thought it was odd that it wasn't translated that way. If it was the same wording, but it certainly is. Like, say, profound. does it make sense though? Because uh, in the context, it looks like he is saying it is I. 
And it, and yeah. the, that's a totally legitimate translation. Although if you're the listener in the boat, uh, you would hear "I am," and and boy, that would hmm. that would take you back to uh, the Old Testament "I am" saying in Exodus three. So awesome. good. Well, thank you. It's for just another identification of the Lord Jesus as deity. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's uh, a hard thing for people to see. Sometimes there's just an illusion to his deity. Sometimes it's an out-and-out statement. Uh, mm. And uh, I think that sometimes we, 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 we neglect the illusions because we don't want to oversell it. But the Bible is so clear about the Lord Jesus being deity. Uh, even when he says to the, when the high priest says, if you are the, uh, the Messiah, tell us. And he says, you'll see the Son of Man uh, descending in the clouds. Well, that's from Daniel 7. And it's so clear that the one like a Son of Man in Daniel 7 is deity. That he's not just saying that he's the Messiah. He's saying he's the divine Messiah. And it's a clear statement. So, yeah, I think that this is just another one of those illusions where he finds uh, his, where we can find the Lord Jesus identifying himself as the God Messiah, the d- divine Messiah. Well, thanks for your call, Carrie. Really appreciate it. We're going to come right back uh, with the mailbag in just a moment. So stay right there. More questions coming up right here on Open Line with Michael Ray Helnick. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Radjelnik, and joining me right now is Karen Hendren. She's our guest producer of Open Line today, and she's going to be asking the questions you've sent in. Uh, before that, though, uh, I want to mention that I I met with a guy just recently, Keith, and he's from Wisconsin, and he told me that he recently became one of Open Line's kitchen table partners. I am so grateful for Keith. I'm grateful for all our kitchen table partners. I'm grateful for a person that listens, but I'm especially grateful for kitchen table partners because their gifts to Open Line every month make it possible to teach God's Word to our listeners every week. Uh, And now every other week, Keith will be receiving a Bible study moment. That's a special audio Bible study designed exclusively for our kitchen table partners. Now, if you've been listening to Open Line, you've even occasionally given a gift, and you thought, well, this I appreciate this program. Maybe you'd like to do a little more, and you would, might even consider becoming a kitchen table partner and giving monthly to Open Line. If that's the case, all you have to do is call 888-644-7122, or you can sign up online at openlineradio.org. Hey, Karen, how you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, jet lagged. That's oh, how I am. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Woke up at about four today. Right. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's hard when you come back from a, a big trip like that to yeah, kind of yeah. get back into the. Yeah, but I, I feel okay now. You know, at about four this afternoon, I'm going to be uh, unconscious, I think. But right now, I'm okay. So uh, I went to a meeting at Moody yesterday. Everyone was saying, wow, you look great for having just arrived from Israel. And I said, I look great now. But if you saw me tonight at 7 o'clock, you'd think he does not look good. So, yeah. 
So anyway, uh, I'm glad I'm glad you're here, Trisha. Uh, Trisha could have made it, but I thought that it was. Uh, in, Trisha was in Israel. I don't think it's the jet lag. It's the fact that the grandparents were watching the kids for the last couple of weeks. Well, yeah, and that's, that's what she told me. She was like, I won't see my kids for two weeks. I want to yeah. I want to see them and spend some time with them. Yeah, so I'm glad that she got this time today to be with her kids. Uh, and so thank you for sitting in. Uh, let's, let's hit the mailbag. What do you got for me? Okay, well, we'll start with uh, Jeannie, who wrote in on Facebook. She wants to know your thoughts on Moses' wife circumcising their son on the way to Egypt. And she's asking, uh, was his wife saving Moses' life? Uh, yeah, I think she was. Uh, and she resented it. Uh, you know, th- I think it's interesting that you can actually see uh, some pretty normal marital conflict in the Bible. Uh, I think of of Sarah laughing when the angel says she's going to have a child and and Abraham has enough faith but Sarah he the angel says to her, you laughed and she said I didn't laugh and she says oh but you did uh here in act in Exodus 4 uh when Moses is heading to Israel I believe that's where it takes place uh with with the uh with his wife uh he goes, he's traveling along. I'm trying to find the verse here. Uh, and uh, what happened is that the, it's, oh, here it is. It's, uh, it's Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. Why? Because here's Moses going to be the leader of the Jewish people, the redeemer who's going in to Egypt to let the people go, right? To represent God. And he has not obeyed the commandment, which was to circumcise his son. And the Lord said, you can't lead unless you're obedient. He was holding him accountable for that. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. She said, here, I'll do it. You were supposed to, but I'll do it. And I resent it because this is not my culture. I'm, I'm a Midianite. And what do you do? look at what you made me do. Uh, then she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, I think that's a reference to God, let him alone. At that time, she said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me, referring to the circumcision. So, yeah, she... I think very resentfully intervened so that Moses wouldn't be slain by God and now he could serve as the leader of the people. So I think it shows the accountability that leaders can't just go do what God says when he says tells them to lead. They have to live obedient lives and uh, be a good example and uh, uh, should have had his son circumcised. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so. All right. Well, we'll we'll take another question. Yeah. By the way, I think it's so funny. A lot of people have a, a lot of questions about that passage. Uh, I, I get it frequently, and I've even talked to scholars who are sort of find it enigmatic. But I don't think it is. I think uh, I understand Moses' hesitation. This is not something that most men would want to do, mm-hmm. but the man was responsible to do it, and uh, he needed to be obedient in order to lead. That's just a good principle to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, Ed, uh, 
he listens online or he listens from Florida and he wrote uh, in online and he wants to know as believers were told or called to love the sinner but hate the sin and he wants to uh, he's asking then why David writes uh, how you rectify that with what David wrote in Psalm 139 21 and 22 where it says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Mm-hmm. I hate them with the utmost hatred. Uh, well, I think the principle that we live by is John three sixteen that God loves the whole world, right? And that Jesus came to redeem sinners. Uh, he came to seek and to save those who are lost. And I think that there's a good rule that if God loves sinners, that we should love them too. Uh but Psalm 139 is one of those imprecatory psalms which basically says, not just general sinners, but that people who are opposing the work of God, uh, who hate the work of God, that the, uh, the writer saying, I hate those who oppose you, God, and I will oppose them. Uh, it seems like, oh, that's an Old Testament ethic. But even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, uh, the martyrs of the tribulation, they uh, have an imprecatory prayer asking God to judge those who martyred them, who killed them. It says in Revelation chapter 6 that they cried out with a loud voice, verse 10, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? Uh, so I think that there it's sort of a balance on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should love all people. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to care about people, serve them, uh, love sinners just the way God does. On the other hand, uh, there are those who oppose the work of God, who hate the work of God, who are actively opposed to the work of God, uh, uh, blasphemous about the work of God. And uh, those, you know, the idea of of opposing them is not something that should be... uh, uh, I don't, I don't believe this is emotional hatred, but really a rejection of them. That's what the word hate really means. You know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That means uh, Jacob I chose, God says in Malachi 1, but Esau I have rejected. That's what hated is. So what David in Psalm 139 says is, I think David is the one that wrote Psalm 139, uh, whoever wrote Psalm 139 is saying on the one hand, uh, I, I know that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I reject those utterly who oppose your work. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about an emotional, passionate, uh, uh, kind of fiery hatred where you're trying to hurt them, but rather it's talking about a, a rejection of those who reject God. So, uh, I think it's just a balance, yeah. in my opinion. So let's do one more. Okay. All right. Um, well, Rosemary, who listens in on WKES in Florida, 
Uh, so she doesn't understand why the killing of an animal or, more directly, the killing of Jesus was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the way God has established the world. It says in Leviticus 17, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it's lifeblood that makes atonement. Here's what it is. The life of the flesh, the life of our being, is in the blood. It's in the blood. To get You know, if someone uh, bleeds, ultimately they can bleed out and die. Life of the flesh is in the blood. And uh, what because of sin, the soul that sins, it shall die. Uh, we we deserve death for sin. And so what, the, what God does is he has provided a substitute to take the punishment that was deserved by the person. So the animal took that punishment and uh, gave its life blood, so to speak, to provide a covering for sin. And ultimately, that wouldn't take away sin. It was the lifeblood of the Lord Jesus uh, who, that he poured out for us that redeems us from sin, and then he was raised from the dead. But essentially, it's because that's that's where life exists, in the blood. And so that's the, the payment that has to be paid uh, for redemption. And people say, well, why did God plan it that way? You know, that's, that's above my pay grade. I can just tell you what the Bible what the Bible teaches, and, that, and that's the way it is. Yeah, that's so, just the way it is. Yeah, uh, that's how God established the, the paradigm. Not me, uh, but I understand it, that uh, that's because it's life for life. When we sin, we deserve to give our lives, and so the Lord Jesus gave his life in our stead. And what a great substitution. Uh, you know, it, it says it's, you would be willing to die for a good man, but the Lord Jesus, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. That's that's just an amazing, amazing substitution that he did for us. Very so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, uh, thanks for those questions. Keep sending them in. You can. Uh, we're gonna take a break here, but uh, what we're going to do is uh, uh, take more more questions. Uh, in the second hour, you'll come back with more of the mailbag. Uh, right now, we're going to go back to the phones when we come back after this break. And when we come back after the break, we'll be talking to a bunch of you with your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. You can always go to openlineradio.org, click on Ask Michael a Question, and leave your question there for the mailbag. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Open Lines. So glad you stayed with us. Uh, you know, I just got back from Israel, and I, I was reading. I read the daily news from Israel every day, even when I'm home here in America, because Israel is constantly in the news, facing political, diplomatic, even violent struggles. What does the future hold for Israel? Well, Chosen People Ministries, one of our underwriters and an organization that reaches Jewish people with the good news of Jesus all around the world, they are offering a book. It's called Israel's Glorious Future. It was written by their past president, Harold Sevener. The book details God's faithfulness to his covenant promises 
made to Israel in the past and biblical prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future. If you'd like a free copy of the book, Israel's Glorious Future, just go to openlineradio.org. That's our website, openlineradio.org. Scroll down to the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel's Glorious Future. And uh, we're going to go right back to the phones here, and we're going to talk with Dennis in Naperville, Illinois, listening, I guess, on WMBI. Welcome to Open Line, Dennis. How can I help you? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rodelic, and thank you for your ministry. Uh, my, my question is with two uh, a conflict with two different scriptures, both spoken by Jesus. Um, John three sixteen through 18, um, I won't... Um, I, I, I think most people know John scripture. three sixteen, right? Don't you think? Pardon me? I think most people know John yes. three sixteen. Yeah, okay. Correct. Now and then the second part. Okay. Of what, 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 what 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 is it? What is it about John three sixteen that you're pointing out? Oh, there's nothing with John three sixteen. It's actually no, no. But what is it that you're pointing out? What is it that? Oh, well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay. So, okay. You're, uh, I'm still, go ahead. Go on with your question. I'm still not clear. Okay. Go ahead. And then, then we have Matthew 25. Uh, it's, a, it's a long passage. I won't, uh, for, the, for time constraints, I won't go read everything. But Matthew 25, um, Verses thirty-one uh, through forty-six, but but the one that but the uh, verse that really uh, spoke to me was, um, then he will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Uh, basically, um, Those who are hungry, did you did you feed me? I'm I'm paraphrasing here. Those who when you were when those who were hungry, did you feed okay, them? Okay, when let me stop you were... there, Dennis. I think I understand your question now. You're saying in John three sixteen, the way to eternal life is by belief, by trusting in Jesus. But here, Correct. it sounds like the way to eternal life is giving food to the hungry, uh, drink to the thirsty. Uh, clothing the naked and caring for the sick, is that? Is that well? No, and so I'm it, not trying to. I'm trying to discard John three sixteen. No, no. What you're trying how, to say is that that you're saying that there appears to be a contradiction, correct? Well, for the lack of a better term, yeah, uh, yes. Okay. Well. Let me just, uh, I think that the Bible is really clear. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? And that's what Jesus right. means when, he's, when he I says... Guess, I guess my concern here on Matthew is that, does that fall into works? I understand. Okay. So I think it's really clear from Scripture that... Uh, that he, that the Lord Jesus and Paul and the whole of Scripture teaches that uh, that we are 
saved by grace through faith. And that's what John 3.16 is saying. You know, those of us who believe will have eternal life. Now, when you come to Matthew 25, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where this is, this is when all the nations at the second coming are gathered before the king. It says it. A lot of people think this is individuals, that it, that it's direct references to today, but it's not. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's the second coming, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so the the parable of the sheep and the goats is about the judgment of the nations at the return of Jesus. That will take place in the valley, the Kidron Valley. Uh, and there he says to some, uh, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink and, and all of those things that we talked about. They say mm-hmm. when, he says, inasmuch as you've... Uh, 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 that to the, the least of these brothers of mine. He's talking about people who are genuine believers who have trusted in Jesus in the tribulation. And that's why they're willing to protect the physical brothers of Jesus who are the object of the Antichrist hatred, uh, the Jewish people. They will be the ones who are protecting them and helping them in their persecution. And they their actions, uh, don't, it's not work salvation. What it is is their actions are a reflection of a faith that they have in Jesus. And they prove that they have faith because they're willing to protect the brothers of Jesus. That's what that's about. So I hope that clarifies it for you, Dennis. Good question. We're going to be right back because that's the first hour. Thanks for listening, everyone. Keep listening. There's a second hour of Open Line on most of these stations. If your station doesn't carry Open Line's second hour, you can always listen on the Moody Radio app or online. During the break, check out our webpage. That page has links to past programs, questions. There's a link to help you give a gift of any size so you can receive our current resource. It also shows you how you can become a Kitchen Table Partner. There's a link to the Journeys of Paul tour. Check that out. Second hour of Open Line is coming up straight ahead with more of your questions. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.